0: Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Thank you so much for downloading. My name is Renee Manderville, a project manager at the Indian Ocean World Centre, or IOWC, at McGill University. I am joined by Drs. Philip Gooding and Archisman Chowdhury, two postdoctoral fellows at the IOWC. Hi Renee,
2: thank you for having me again. Hello, Ronnie. Thank you for having me here.
1: So you will hear more from them later on in the podcast, but our guest today is Professor Divjani Bhattacharya, an assistant professor in the Department of History at Drexel University, Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania. Professor Bhattacharya received a PhD in history at Emory University in 2014. She was a visiting fellow at the Shelby Cullum Davis Center at Princeton University in 2019-2020. She has published several peer-reviewed journal articles, including publications in History Compass, the Journal of the Economic and Social History of the Orient, and the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Asian Studies. She is currently researching for a project entitled Monsoon Landscapes, Credit, Climate, and Calamity in the Bay of Bengal, and today, she is here to discuss her widely lauded book, Empire and Ecology in the Bengal Delta, The Making of Calcutta. This book was published with Cambridge University Press in their Studies in Environment and History series in 2018. Professor Bhattacharya, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much, Renee and Philip and Archisman. It is a pleasure to be speaking with you
1: today. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Uh, So first of all, could you discuss your key arguments and influences? Um, Just as a jumping off point, we were fascinated by one of your core statements in your introduction. So you wrote on page three of your book, empire and ecology conceives of the built environment of calcutta as sedimentation of historical time silt and human design in order to write the river and the deltaic ecology into the city's history so what do you mean by this what does it mean to write a river or a delta into the history of calcutta and in history in general Uh, what were your broader inspirations for this perspective what are the methodological opportunities or constraints and what opportunities arise from centering these kinds of ecological niches in history, especially in urban history.
3: Thanks Rene. So let me step back and uh, discuss the question that uh, drove my project initially. It was a rather simple one. So I asked if South Asia produced some of the finest works on the history of agrarian property, land market, then why was it that the urban counterpart did not emerge as an object of sustained historiographical questioning. So the genealogies and afterlives of agrarian and urban property cannot be the same. Moreover, I was struck by the divide within the field of South Asian history. So agrarian property and land market was subject of intensive historical scrutiny. But when it came to the question of urban property for speculation, building the city, it became primarily an anthropological question. Of course, there are exceptions to this, but this I saw as a kind of a broad divide. So that was the initial question with which I landed up in the archive. And this was in 2009 when I was a graduate student. And as I scuttled between the various archives across Kolkata, trying to write the history of colonial Calcutta's urban property market, I was struck by the number of cases about marshes, bogs, also known as Jola Jomi, which is watery land, which is a legal term, whose status as either land or water body was questionable. There were disputes over canals, over nalas, which is drains, spill channel, even that question became kind of important in the legal archive about sedimentations and sediment, about alluvians. So it was then that I realized that I needed to make space for water in understanding the political economy of land in Calcutta. And once I admitted the presence of water in the countless dispute cases, I saw water and its erasures everywhere not least in the waterlogged, monsoonal streets that I waded back and forth every day that monsoon uh, uh, August when I was trying to do my first uh, set of research. So therefore, I began my book by talking about this particular forgetting. This forgetting, as I tried to show, was brought about by the cultivation of a particular way of looking at the city or at property both within historiography, within anthropological literature and everywhere. And this particular way of looking was shaped very much by our legal culture and by the technological innovations, which includes trying, draining, and the role that it had to play in. So you see Calcutta's history has primarily been written as a history of marsh to metropolis. That is indeed the name of a kind of a well-known uh, uh, book uh, that was republished in the 1970s. Both colonial histories but also post colonial writers have obsessed about these marshes. If colonial municipal administrators, calm historians blamed Calcutta for the Calcutta's problems on the Jolajomi, Jomi, the watery land, for disease, for pestilence, post colonial historians were too quick to find fault with this colonial reading as one marked by orientalism or epidemiological and civilizational impetus. Thus, while the swamps and a medical moral geography framed much of the discussion, these studies I felt lacked an engagement with the, how the swamp shaped the economic and legal geography of the city. Why is this important? Because projects to drain a swamp cost money, and the municipal bodies in the 19th century, be it the lottery committees or justices of peace or the later municipal corporate bodies was always short of budget at its disposal. So the epidemiological urbanism, which has like primarily held so much importance in colonial urban historiography, has to be squarely situated within a political economy of urban uh, land market. And I had to uh, understand, for example, how much did it cost to drain the city? And this is a question none of the existing historiography answered for me. Where did the money come from? How were such expenditures justified? If much of the city was a swamp, then what were the legal and technological innovations required to make that into a property? And what were the effects? Thus, I tried to show how the legal landscape of turning silty water into solid land for the expansion of urban land market until the kind of cultural and what I call the visual retraining where we see swamps as a moment in the making of a market in real estate. This, in a way, continues to define uh, urbanization all across South Asian cities, especially coastal cities from Mumbai, from Chennai to Mumbai. And right after I finished writing my book, uh, and as you might already know that this year, Jakarta is actually planning to shift the city away, away and uh, Indonesia is planning to shift the capital out of Jakarta away from the watery spaces. So there is a very deep entanglement uh, in thinking about uh, um, how water might actually affect the way we have been writing about coastal cities. Uh, not just simply as port towns, and not just simply as a, 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 through the framework of climate change, but a larger way of think about what happens when we start understanding these amphibious species as part of a larger story about land market that we need to tell.
1: Okay, hey, thank you so much for that. Um, I'll now pass the inquiries over to our two postdoctoral fellows. So, Philip, do you have any questions for Dipjani?
0: Uh, yeah, thank you, um, Renee, and uh, thank you, Professor Bhattacharya, as I was saying just before um, we started recording, I really very much enjoyed reading your book. Um, and I've got a couple of questions with a climatic bent. so I hope that they uh, interact not just with Empire and Ecology, um, which you presented here, um, but also with your ongoing project into Credit Climate and Calamity in the Bay of Bengal. Firstly, um, it starts off with quite a broad question, but I'll hone down um, as I go on, um, quite broadly, um, how does climate change and climatic variation fit into all of this? Um, I know from reading your book that there are some moments of significant change uh, in relationship between humans and hydrology, hydrology uh, in Calcutta. Um, for example, um, we can discuss the late 18th, early 19th centuries uh, with Lakeham's harbour uh, and the changing course of the Hooghly River. Um, the late nineteenth century, which is a period of significant urban development, which, as you state in chapter four as well, was heavily influenced by annual monsoon floods, um, and you even suggest um, in your intro that in the last twenty years or so, particularly with the Atmosphere Project, um, there's been significant development as well. What I note from these kind of periodizations—the late nineteenth, sorry, the late eighteenth to early nineteenth, the late nineteenth, and the last twenty, um, the last twenty years. These are also times of significant volatility uh, in the Indian Ocean monsoon system, associated, broadly speaking, with um, extreme and frequent uh, um, events in the El Nino Southern Oscillation, um, extreme anomalies anomalies in the Indian Ocean Dipole, uh, and frequent volcanic eruptions. Um, Thus, so a more focused question here is, um, how do you see the relationship between these projected periods of volatile climate uh, in the wider Indian Ocean world uh, and changes to hydrology, um, property and law in the history of Calcutta. And perhaps as part of this you might also be able to speak to the extent to which these broader patterns of climatic volatility uh, in the wider Indian Ocean world also apply to Calcutta.
3: Well thanks Philip, that's a really wide-ranging question. So let me take it in three ways. So I'll try to think about the first set of question about the relationship between climate and property. Then I will talk about how I work with the uh, concept of climate change. And I will end by speaking very, very briefly about uh, my new project, which is still in the research stage. See, the way as I started writing the book and uh, organizing my archival material, I realized that uh, I had to have a capacious understanding and definition of property. And in some way, po- property performs multiple kinds of work in my book. So swarms were not just waterlogged pestilential spaces, but sometimes they were sedimentary deposits that move, that they disappear, and then they again reappear, creating havoc for documenting property and planning infrastructure. So this seasonality, uh, or the, like the way annual monsoons defines the formation of land in this area that, well, and the landscape actually I sh- show that they challenged the propertizing impetus of the land register land records map so as I documented and you mentioned that um, not just the harbor that disappeared but Calcutta's first cadastral um, survey was in 1797 and right thereafter and it, it cost quite a significant amount of municipal at that point the state government's budget um, And right after in 1803, 1804, uh, the river shifted and deposited a uh, strip of two and a half miles of land, and it was almost four miles long, which completely then, and this was also along the harbor, which is prime real estate or known as river frontage property. So it created a lot of havoc. So they would have to go back again, and this was not a one-time project as they understood because... At this very time, permanent settlement in the agrarian landscape, uh, agrarian lands and titles were being permanently settled, which was also being undone. As uh, works like, you know, Iftikhar Iqbal, Benjamin Kingsbury's work recently documented how it was uh, how the embankments and the landscape was being undone, and therefore the uh, land titling was being undone. So that that really affected how property, how how the monsoon and the movement of the river who had the power of undoing mapping undoing property registers and undoing cadastral surveys and which made me then start thinking in terms of you know if you think think through someone like james scott's work of seeing like a state he tells us these are very very important registers to see the state and for me the interest was okay these these are clearly failing in the bengal Delta. so how do i understand this i can't say this was not a powerful state clearly east india company went on to become the British Empire. So how do I understand this? And what I realized was um, monsoon emerged in some ways an extraordinary moment of land submergence, drowning the real borders of the land. The only problem was when water receded, landscape was transformed every year. So you cannot drain a landscape or a monsoonal landscape. And Calcutta still has not been drained as much of the historiography argued in some ways. The seasonality revealed the limits of the patta, which is the land lease, but ultimately did not change mapping or land documenting practices. So uh, I began my book by documenting the case of the failed harbor project roughly in 1770 because this failure revealed a lot about the work of property, nature and technology and how they're very entangled in the delta. In studying this particular case and its afterlife, and sometimes I think I'm going to still, work, actually I'm working on a project where I pick up uh, from the afterlife of this case, I was struck by the fact that property was a process of land making in the face of an amphibious and mobile delta. It operated as a, 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 as a technology of drying by cultivating an administrative frame to separate land from water through a documentary regime and thereby offered fixity in a mobile landscape. And that was the main point I was trying to drive. It was not simply engineering practices that drained and fixed the landscape. It didn't actually. But it was not a story of failure, but it actually allowed, gave us legal terminology and set it up to, for instance, understand how do we propertize these kinds of seasonal landscapes. Which brings me to the second question I hear you asking, which is about climate change. So when I was working on the book, I wasn't thinking in terms of climate change. And uh, at least when I was working on the dissertation, I wasn't thinking at all in terms of climate change. In fact, I was going and by the time I began working on the book, of course, like a lot of devastating cyclones had struck Calcutta by then and the Sundarbans. And I wanted to resist both the frames of climate change and Anthropocene. And let me tell you why. And let me come to it. Once you begin with the framework of climate change or something as big and universalizing as Anthropocene, what happens is other stories and histories get hidden away. So these have almost come to take the position of the universals, right? And I want to tell very granular nested stories. So what I did was I wanted to explore the question of how can one write about the changing, ever-changing sea face of Bengal, and this is a term a colonial uh, historian W.H. Uh, Hunter uses about this space. How can you write about this without an explanatory framework of climate change, organizing the material? I acknowledge that climate change, or more specifically, deltaic land subsidence, mangrove loss, rising waters, make the specific ecology of the delta as an object of inquiry to grapple with. So I began by asking how, outside the framework of climate change, Did 18th century land speculators, 19th century company merchants, planters, revenue officials make sense of a tidal and ever-moving landscape? A more powerful story emerged when nature or what got bracketed as you also use the term natural anomaly became a site of profit extraction. So let me break this down a bit where I see also legal history and environmental history intersecting in my work. Legal history, historians of empire and I'm thinking here primarily of someone like Lauren Benton, they outlined how environment often became a natural limit to legal expansion, especially in the Iberian case. And we certainly see the uneven legal geographies in corridors, borderlands, and amphibious spaces. As I began working on these amphibious spaces, I discovered another landgill. These spaces, especially in Calcutta, the marshes and alluvians became sites for legal experimentation that I explored in chapters two and three, And they became sites to actually practice what I called quasi eminent domain practices to grab that land as company's land. So that was in that framework helped me understand that the East India Company, which someone like Philip Stern studied as, you know, the corporate sovereignty or the company state was also territorializing their power, not just through revenue extraction, but also acting as custodians of public land, as a land developer itself which then help me understand also the contemporary landscape, which is not like, how is it that when we look at a marsh or a bog, we see it as real estate in waiting. It's not a new problem. There is a way we have been cultivated to see these either as wastelands that need to be drained, need to be turned productive. And I wanted to really chart this long history that uh, makes us look at these spaces at, through our acquisitive frameworks. And it, it is it is only by turning to this do we understand give a story to the uh, give give a kind of a longer backdrop and history to climate change that is uh, that it is not helpful to begin when you begin with the framework of climate change. I hope you've got what I was saying. And this is something I'm actually developing in my new work. And as I said, it's still in the research state. I'm exploring and I'm exploring how imperial trade which was governed by the winds and the tides and the monsoon winds, uh, was one way that we uh, can understand through the archives of imperial finance to study the history of atmospheric and climate science in the 19th century. How did, for instance, actuarial tables of maritime trade impacted how we studied winds, storms, currents, and tropical cyclones. In some way, I want to write the history of tropical science like David Arnold, but from the archives of uh, Imperial Free
0: Finance this time. Wonderful. I look forward to seeing that, I well, see the light of day. Um, and you've answered the question um, incredibly well uh, in, a very detailed, um, in a very detailed way. Um, I think the, just kind of an addition to that question, I think, um, which drawing on something from the end of your book, uh, you discuss a colonial logic in, on page 198, Uh, in which a colonial officer saw the need to, uh, quote, drain the swamps to create more land, thereby bringing market equilibrium. Um, And this was part of a drive at the beginning of the 20th century to alleviate a housing crisis uh, in which um, demand outstripped, supply and prices were increasing. Um, Even if the motives were economic here, and clearly they were, Surely this and other related policies in the surrounding regions uh, and in previous years, for example, the um, destruction of mangrove forests, uh, had serious ecological consequences. Um, and thus I wondered is seasonality, is the monsoon season felt differently in Calcutta because of, quote, the drainage of the swamps? Um, and are periods of overly abundant or overly abundant rainfall or less than average rainfall, so drought? and felt differently because these swamps are being drained. Um, this is, a, I suppose, comes linking all this together, I suppose it's a question about risk. The colonial logic was thinking about economic risk, but does this have, but by being concerned with economic risk, are they opening themselves to increased levels of environmental risk mm-hmm. as well?
3: Thank you so much, and I, think the, I like the way you've connected the question of risk, both economic, economically and ecologically, and that's the that was the most challenging part of writing the book how do i connect the story of the ecological risk someone like benjamin lacombe is taking and say the other side of it is the economic risk of draining the swamp how do i show the loss of the harbor as a story that has that's a longer history of how we are draining the swamp in some, how 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 we are draining our our wetlands see um uh, for instance uh, 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 Let me start with the present and that might be useful. Kolkata is surrounded by what is known as wetlands. And these are actually protected Ramsar sites and they're protected sites and they call these Kolkata wetlands and they serve as a natural defense to flooding as well as it's an aquaculture uh, that serves as sewage treatment. Kolkata is actually one of the largest cities in the world that doesn't have a uh, mechanical sewage treatment plant because we are able to. Automatically and naturally uh, uh, use the aerobic and the anaerobic ponds too, and the and the tropical sun to treat a sewage. And many like uh, scientists from many parts of the world go and actually study the wetlands to understand how this is done. This saves our municipality an immense amount of money. And um, uh, Dr. Druboji Ghosh who's a ecologist who's been actively passed away a year and a half ago, who had been active worked on the. The wetlands for the last 40 years have called with the ecological subsidy that the wetlands offer to the city. So that these wetlands are increasingly important and I'm still glad that some of it exists, which protects Calcutta from getting flooded. And the, if, they, uh, if the wetlands are almost at like the pulse of the city, if the wetlands go, the city will go. Yet, uh, what's very interesting is there are two things I want to point out here. So in my archive, um, one of the British officials, it's Lord Canning, he's quite famous uh, for anybody who knows Calcutta's history. Uh, he constantly complained that the, uh, the Maidan, which is like a 333 acres of green space in the heart of Calcutta, turns into a sheet of water every monsoon. If you were to go to Calcutta today, it still does. And that has not changed about Calcutta. The more we build up the wetlands, this sheet of water will become a pool of water to a river of water and at some point an ocean of water. And that's what I sort of try to warn against in my book. But what is happening currently? So most Indian cities are going through what um, people have called the bypass urbanization. So you have old Mumbai and then you have Navi Mumbai, which is supposed to be an informational city. You have Delhi and then you have Gurgaon. It's always close to the airport, it is the inter, uh, uh, informi- uh, IT city, IT hubs, it has special economic zones and it's connected by rapid transit, you have a metro, you have a fast moving air conditioned bus and in, in the case of Kolkata, the new town of the Hub is actually also built with enormous amount of um, uh, remittance money and what this uh, this the real estate there is basically not only turning swamps into land and property but it also turning air into an, uh, air into property and there's an enormous amount of vacant unoccupied speculative real estate that sur- that is surrounding calcutta and this is built on this ecologically critical wasteland and that is the, and that is another kind of ecological risk we are actually experimenting with and the problem like the problem that i, I want to The point before I end over here is our government currently has understood this as uh, wetlands need to be protected. And guess who's become the encroachers? It's not the IT companies. It's not the middle class and upwardly mobile who found homes there. It is the fishers who actually do the work of aerobic and anaerobic corn and turning our sewage into edible stuff for the fish and into clean water that flows into the bee. They have now suddenly emerged as a so there is always the problem and this all comes again because we have propertized our ideas of what is water, what is a lake, what is a pond, what is a wheel where you actually do pisciculture and what is land. And it is this property notion that actually ends up again erasing a set of people who have lived with this amphibious landscape before it became primary estate. And so that's the kind of challenge I wanted to hold together in my book and try to look at how certain kinds of ecological risk taking became sites of profit extraction to sites of economic risk and uh, over the course of the 150 years that I tried to
0: document. Wonderful. Thank you very much for answering those questions. Um, Ashman, I believe you have a question as well.
2: Yes. Uh, thank you, Professor Bhattacharya. My question uh, diverges in theme from Philip's question. I'm more interested about the Uh, wider Bay of Bengal and colonial contexts. For instance, uh, your book uh, quite articulately demonstrates how the development of colonial infrastructure engineered the urban landscape of Calcutta for about a century and a half by draining out marshes and swamps and eventually erasing, as you argue, erasing the city's watery past from its remembered histories. For instance, on pages 13 and 15, you argue Uh, how urban marshes were turned into built environments of rails, roads, and dock infrastructures that connected the delta to the city. And you use these as a point of intervention uh, to move beyond the binaries of forest or field in South Asian um, agrarian urban studies. In this respect, I am wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how your research speaks to the developmental processes of another major colonial infrastructure in Deltaic Southern Bengal. And here I allude to the expansion of the suburban railways towards the Bay of Bengal. Some of the ports in fact were named after, one of the ports in fact was named after Lord Canning, (laughs) whom we were just talking about. Uh, And this project began in the late 19th century. So my question is, how did this coeval engineering Mm -hmm. projects draw upon each other, especially in terms of choice of routes or layout of grids and this eventually had played a substantial expansion a substantial role in the southern expansion of the city and it it would also have had i presume similar effects on increasing the value of land in waiting as you call it
3: thank you Dara. thank you so much for that question and that's a very very good question and to be honest the railway question came up really only once in my in my book and chapter three, and in fact, I could have done much more with the railway question. So, let me give like so, two things to be noted over here. Scholars who there are scholars who've explored this in detail, and you know it as well as uh, every but for our speakers, I'll just name them. And uh, in terms of the question of ecology in the Bengal Delta and infrastructure, I really think uh, uh, if the Iqbal's book, The Bengal Delta, is fantastic. But both Ravi Ahuja and to some extent Rohan Vesuza have looked at uh, these questions, though Rohan looked at how, uh, for instance, dams completely transformed the land, soaked in water, and where flooding was a great thing to where flooding became a thing of danger. But to come to your specific question, uh, the construction of wet docks in Calcutta in the 19th century was planned as early as 1820s and did not get built till almost 1850s. And there was this long debate, and there the railway question became very important because when they started uh, getting land and finding the perfect spot on the river where you can have a dock because you can't just build a harbor anywhere you need equal. You need a uh, good amount of tide, and in a way a, a curve or a bend in the river is always good for a harbor. Uh, and then they found that two things affected it the distance from the railway but also the ability to acquire land and some of the best parts on the river were often parts where the europeans or the british were living and they could not acquire that as a result the Calcutta docks are situated where they are and as you might know or it's not yet in the prime real estate area if you think about it very carefully it was precisely brought there and an extra line was built through Accra to Khedirpur at that point to actually maximize the profit out of the docks and minimize the cost. Uh, and it's very, very interesting. The like, intricate calculation went in If uh, because uh, taking over land from the native residents, they argued, and native within quotes, of course, native residents would cost much less and building a railway is much easier than doing that. Another thing that was very, very important in this, uh, in the question you're asking is, Uh, where the rail tracks were laid. So the rail tracks were laid in areas that could not turn into massive swarms and there was a lot lot of investigation, a lot of uh, work and uh, went into that. At the very time that the railway engineers are actually laying down the railway tracks and railway engineers are often coming from Calcutta and Bengal, there are other engineers who are doing work on embankments in the Sundarban area and Bengal Delta and they are writing very, very strong letters and saying Indian rivers are such where you cannot suppose a margin. And they work for the river department and not for the rail department. And these two units do not talk surprisingly. And they say Indian rivers, are. it is impossible to suppose margins like British rivers or rivers that we know from temperate climates. These are tidal landscape. And this person, William Sage, is a fascinating engineer. He also writes and says... uh, Um, that uh, in in the Bengal, in the Sundarbans, the people call them Nala and not Nodi. And Nala basically means drains or spill channels, whereas Nodi means river. And say our entire engineering is based on river hydrology, whereas we do not think in terms of uh, Nalas and creeks and spill channels and seasonal kind of water bodies. And we have to rethink our engineering based on that. But do you think anybody listened to him? Absolutely not. So in a way, these kinds of incidents happen um, at least throughout the 19th century. By the time, uh, and and the infrastructure question in the early part of the 19th century is uh, completely located in a different kind of political economy. It's about uh, individual speculators coming, trying to build infrastructure, trying to gain uh, kind of a footing with the... uh, uh, East India Company, they might not directly be serving um, uh, uh, members of the East India Company. It's very much in the mold of how you would build infrastructure under the late Mughals. You built uh, Ghats, you built riverbanks, that was social capital. By the time you move to post 1857 and the crown takes over, and as for instance Ravi Ahuja's work has shown, or even Manu Goswami's work on producing India, it completely operates in a completely different kind of imperial framework where it's a public spending venture funded through stocks in London or bonds that you are selling. It it operates in a completely different ecology, uh, political economy. The calculations are completely different and where voices of these engineers were actually embedded in the landscape and who are writing back and saying this is actually impossibility, completely fall out because it's very much driven by imperial and financial concerns.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Professor Bhattacharya, Um, both for your wonderful book for presenting to us today um, and also for answering these questions um, so well and interestingly and in detail. Um, So we want to wish you good luck with your ongoing work, uh, knowing from its title that it will likely interact with our work on climate in the Indian Ocean world. Uh, So we will look very much forward to seeing that and um buying a copy Um, thank you to philip gooding and archesman chowdhury for their insightful questions um and thank you so much to you the listeners for downloading once again my name is renee manderville and you have been listening to the indian ocean world podcast
0: The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project, Appraising Risk, Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean World.